Blog Talk Radio. This is Kale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It is Tuesday, December 13th, 2011, 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. right here in Texas. And I hope everybody is in the midst of a terrific holiday season. You know, I don't absolutely know this to be true. There can always be a last-minute schedule change, of course. But this is likely to be my final Brandon's Buzz installment for this year. And I can't possibly think of a brighter and more thrilling way to close out the Buzz's third year of existence than with this little holiday treat, another enlightening conversation with a remarkable woman whose acquaintance I was fortunate enough to make earlier this year after decades of admiring her staggering work. You may or may not know, and you may or may not be surprised to learn, that the interview I did back in the spring with the incredible Susan Bethel Horgan, a woman best known, at least in my house, as the former writer and executive producer of my old favorite soap, One Life to Live, has been far and away my most popular and most listened to episode of this year. And during that first conversation, she revealed to me a fact that I had not known prior, that she was once the head writer of As the World Turns for a Time in the mid-'80s. And I found myself at that time being lambasted on several online message boards for not knowing about it and for not asking Miss Horgan more questions about that period in the show's history. So when I scanned the episode list for the brand-new World Turns DVD box set that has just been released and realized that some of her work would be included on this set, I reached out to her again, and she was ex- and, and I was ecstatic when she instantly agreed to come back here and subject herself to another round of being pelted with intense rapid-fire questions. Uh, as an added treat, Ms. Horgan, or Susie as she insisted I call her, is dear friends with former soap king Tom Racina, who happens to have been largely responsible for spinning the stories that made couples like Luke and Laura, uh, Bowen Hope, John and Marlena, Shane and Kim, Patch and Kayla, and countless others, the stuff of soap legend. And Tom just happened to be uh, visiting Susie on the day we taped this interview, and it wasn't long at all before he couldn't resist picking up the phone and diving into this conversation himself. So before we get rolling here on the on the silliness of soap, let's talk about you for a minute. How the hell are you? I mean, first of all, you get hammered by a damned hurricane, of all things, and then a freak <laughs> snowstorm cripples the entire region you live in. Please tell me everything's all right with you. Everything is all right. We did lose power for five days, twice in two months, which oh, was... Oh, Lord. We've lived here for 26 years. It's never happened. Now, in Irene, it wasn't so bad because it, the weather was nice and it was warm, but this last time, it was very cold and... So as we speak, we are going to have a generator put in. It's in the process of happening. And is that a rarity amongst Connecticut folk, or, or is it pretty common? 
Well, many people have generators, but now everyone is getting one. There's one generator company in town who has a waiting list of 800 people. And the first company I called in the middle of the blackout said, we can't even get anybody to come talk to you for six to eight weeks. But I found a guy who did one for a friend of mine. and so. But it, we're all scrambling to get them because we know that there's just going to be more and more of this. Wow. The town is totally wooded, and the uh, electrical wires are antiquated. I mean, it's just amazing that the electricity works at all. <laughs> I don't know if you ever crossed paths with Linda Dano, but she lives in I think she lives a couple hours outside yes, of New York does. City in Connecticut somewhere. And yes. she she t- she was on the show recently, and, and she had lost power for nine days after the storm. And <laughs> she was talking about trees being down everywhere because the leaves were still on the trees. And, and you know, people don't realize how heavy snow is when it's sitting, you know, just on these trees. And, and, and uh, she was talking about, you know, just trees being down everywhere, power lines being down everywhere, and, and she had lost power for nine days. So, Wow, poor thing. I do know Linda, and, I, of course, we go back to the World Turns days. Back in the eighties, but yeah, she's in a more she's even more remote because she's I think in Washington, so she's about an hour and a half north of where we are. And I I, I think that your friend uh, Colleen Zink had yeah. had suffered major damage by the hurricane. Yes, and she had major flooding and oh. all sorts of stuff, and she also was without power. It 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 was bad because you know and there's going to be more of them. You know, I have a good friend who's also a host on this network who earlier this year moved back to Buffalo from Florida and. And uh, they got the far edge of of, of Irene's uh, wrath, so to speak. And you know, I was laughing with. Her. It's not funny, but I was laughing with her that, you know, who knew she had to move all the way back to Buffalo to experience a hurricane? <laughs> I know from Florida. <laughs> oh, Buffalo boy, they get snow though. That's cold up there. Boy, I tell you, and she's right there on the. I mean, she to, to hear her talk, she's about two minutes from the lake, so she's right there, uh, in the middle of the of the path whenever something rolls through. Oh dear! Oh my heavens! But she loved it. So <laughs> anyway, I, I'm very happy to hear that, that all is headed back to to well for all of you, and I'm thrilled that you're back here. You know, I'm pretty sure I told you, but uh, nobody else knows that that uh, the show that you and I did back in the spring is far and away my most listened to episode of this year. And I know I talked to you off that day, but I loved talking to you and learning from you. And and so you can't know how appreciative I am that you're subjecting yourself to this torture for a second time, Susie. <laughs> You're very sweet. I'm, hard, I'm really looking forward to it. I I I, just, I loved doing the last one, and I just, you know, I think you're amazing, and I think your questions are so interesting and engaging. So well, you're very I'm thrilled. So I'll let everyone in on the primary reason that I wanted you to come back here, and that is the release of this staggering new box set of of DVDs with 20 specially selected As the World Turns episodes, which is absolutely an idea whose time has come. I think. Yeah. You know, when you were here back in May, you mentioned that you spent a year or so as the head writer of World Turns, which is a fact that I am i was ashamed to tell you that I did not know at that time. And I kind of pride myself on, on good research, and I just had no idea. And, you know, you mentioned that your main achievement was getting Bob and Kim to the altar, and so when I saw that their, their 1985 wedding just so happens to have been one of the 20 episodes selected for this set, it was like a sign from God that I needed to get you back in here. So, <laughs> Well, it's very gratifying to me and moving to know that, I, and it's not surprising given their history and how important they were, but it is very moving that that's been included in in the set. Because what we wanted to do was we wanted to take the show, I don't remember where it had come from, but we wanted to take the show back to a sense of history. And, of course, these two characters and Lisa, the three of them, 
were the major characters that were left from the past, except for Helen Wagner, but, you know, she was obviously much less in storyline at the time. And, you know, this fascinating moment in their past history where they had this affair and had a child was something that just was dropped and not dealt with, except that, of course, they would come together over Andy, but it was sort of a forgotten thing. So um, we decided to go back and revisit it, and we thought they really should be now the major, you know, parental couple on the show. So we did sit down. Bob Calhoun was the executive producer at the time, and we did sit down with Don and Kathy to get their feelings about it because they might have thought, given the fact that it was an affair back then, that they might have been not in favor of it. But they weren't, of course. They loved the idea. So we just went forward decided to, you know, get them married, and it turned out to be a very popular decision. You know, I, I was never a regular viewer of World Turns, as I've told you. I grew up watching Another World, and then I switched to One Life in the summer of 88, and so that's where I've stayed ever since. But but I do know that Bob Not and Lisa Not for long, kind of Brandon. The... <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> so, but I do know that Bob and Lisa were the hot thing in the 60s, you know, with the peerless Eileen Fulton, as you mentioned. And, and uh, you know, I'd wager that a lot of the newer fans have never known a world turns in which Bob and Kim weren't the happily married couple that we all came to know them as. I know. <laughs> Talk a little bit about I mean, was this your decision to bring them back together? Was it just something that occurred to somebody one day? I mean, what was the... What well, was the it, was, it, it came at the time when... Uh, this is when they put me and Jessica Klein and Steve Wasserman together as a team, as a triumvirate, to write the show. So whenever you start, when you take on something like that, you know, you you have a sort of an overview of the entire show, of the stories, of where they've been and where do you want to go. And in knowing that we wanted to bring back not only history, but we felt, and I still feel this is important, that the new young hot characters have to be intimately related to the older characters, you know. Of course. And there were Bob and Kim as the sort of matriarch and patriarch of the show then, now, at that point. And they were only connected with their son. They were not connected, and it's always best to have the matriarch and the patriarch together. So we thought, well, why not marry them? Then we thought the affair in the past would be a a detriment or an impediment. But then we realized that, you know, it wouldn't. God, heaven knows, there are many, many years of water under the bridge. So it was like the minute we had the idea, and I think we all just had it. You know, I don't remember any one particular person saying, oh, let's do this. It just kind of came out of the discussions that we were having as we were sort of planning where we were going to take the show. The minute that the idea was out there, we knew that it was right. We just knew that it was right. It was going to take the show in a new direction with them bonded at the helm. And that's what we wanted. Wow. And it, clearly it, it worked. And do you remember the fan feedback at that? I mean, was it was it just, I mean, I know there was no Internet at that time, and there were barely magazines, but but uh, <laughs> was the feedback just immediate and immense? Well, it, yes, it's from for the fan mail, which is what we dealt with back then, sure. and the ratings. Those were the two ways that you knew what you were doing, how you got feedback, and the ratings were big. I mean, they weren't like Luke and Laura big, but they were, they was big jump up. And it affected the ratings going forward. The ratings stayed up for a while. And, it, you know, at the same time, we also were introducing the Snyder family and Craig and Sierra. There were all these young people, young couples developing at the same time. And that's, of course, the perfect blend. I mean, we were given an opportunity to 
marry them, to have this marriage and romance of these two pillar characters, as I like to think of them, that's a rare opportunity. Usually everybody's already married for years. <laughs> <laughs> So you so we had we had that while all the younger people were carrying on and having their romances so it was just it was really very fortuitous it just felt right uh, talk to me about the genre in those days. You know, in the immediate wake of Luke and Laura, which you mentioned, in, you know, in the in, in the immediate wake of that craze, Gloria Monty and her crew had more or less taught by example that the ideal situation was to bring the soaps out into the world and and you know that exotic locales only enhance the storytelling. As I'm sitting here next to Tom Racina, who's writing a book with Paul Roush on the very subject. <laughs> Anytime you want him to jump on, you know, feel free, Brandon. You know, my perception, and I think the general perception, is that daytime shows brought in so much money for the networks in those days that that working in the industry was just like one big freewheeling party without much oversight at oh. the executive level, the way there is now. And, and I'm wondering oh, if there's oh. any truth to that. No, there is no truth to that. First of all, back then... I can remember when I was an associate producer of Guiding Light and then World Turns before I became producer and then head writer. We would be in budget meetings in Cincinnati at P&G, and they were saying, listen, guys, you know, when the profit margin meets the cost of these shows, we're going to think about going off the air. And guess what? It's encroaching back then. Wow. Now, granted, we didn't know how to do some of the cost-cutting measures that they now can do with digital editing and moving from two-inch to, you know, Avid and one-inch and all of that. There were ways to cut costs that we didn't have back then. Of course. But I can remember that Helen Wagner and a number of actors on the show had limousines to bring them to and from their homes in Connecticut to the city. And I remember we had to cut that out of the budget. And then we had to cut the teleprompters out of the budget. And, you know, each time we did this, there was a hue and cry, and then everybody would get used to it. And it was just as much hard work. And in some respects, even harder because we couldn't take things totally out of sequence the way we can now. And so we had longer days and, you know, you have to get it in the can in a day and that's it. So, no, it was not a freewheeling party at all. <laughs> there was a lot of oversight. We didn't do anything without P&G, Ed Trock, Bob Short, those guys making sure that everything was okay. The guys, then you had the people at the, uh, at the advertising agency and then you had the network. So, uh, remind me how you came to be the head writer of Ezra. You, you started off at Guiding Light, and then somebody suggested you switch. Is that correct? Well, what happened was I started out at Guiding Light. I actually started out at One Life to Live as production secretary. Yes, then I went yes. to Guiding Light in advance of it going to an hour in 1977. And I was assistant producer. Shortly after that, became associate producer. And then Fred Bartholomew was the executive producer of World Turns at that time. And his associate producer had a serious back injury and was going to be out of commission for months. So P&G got the bright idea that I should do both shows. <laughs> <laughs> so Ed Trock takes me out to lunch with Fred. Because back in those days, it's like if Fred didn't like me, it wasn't going to happen. You know, now, in today's world, he'd be told, here she is, you you know. Of course. Got her choice. So he and I hit it off like gangbusters. He was a dear. He was a total mentor of mine. And so he, the first day I was there, he said to me, he closed, came in and he closed the door and he said, I have designs on your body. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and he said, you're not going back to Guiding Life. And I didn't. I stayed on World Turns and then I became a producer. And then 
Mary Ellis was producing Search for Tomorrow, which was a half hour, and Fred was doing World Turns, which was an hour, and they decided to swap them. Okay. And Mary Ellis came to World Turns, and I got burned out. I just got burned out, and so I left. But what always happened was, one of the things Fred did was, I always had story ideas. I couldn't keep my mouth shut about story so Fred used to have me at the story conferences, and back in those days, the producers didn't go to the story meetings. Story meetings were really hush-hush. They were so afraid that the stories would get out because we were in competition with people like Tom Racina, who was having poor Charles, you know, having snow on it, and we were Absolutely. trying to figure out how to do the same thing. So, But anyway, because I'd been at so many story meetings, and I wouldn't keep my mouth shut in the story meetings either, P&G came to me and said, you know, we're doing a we're doing kind of a breakdown workshop. Would you like to be in it, you know, to learn how to write breakdowns? And I said, yes. And so I did about two or three breakdowns in this process and then they said, "Would you like to be head writer?" I mean, oh that's God. the way they did things back then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's so funny you say this because I was talking to uh, Pam Long a couple of years ago. She oh. was she was the head writer of Guiding Light for a time and and uh she started off on Texas and she was an actress on the show and she talked about how she was always hanging out with the producers and and you know in in that circle instead of hanging out with the actors and and uh you know she came to be to be predicting story and then eventually started submitting stories and eventually became the head writer just like just like uh you and it's so funny that that I guess p and g had that had that atmosphere in, in those days that that allowed people to really come up to the ranks like that oh p and g was great that way, and they particularly loved people who were actors. They believed, and they knew I had been an actress, you know, long before. They believed that any of us that were in the creative arts in this medium had something to contribute to what we were doing. They were very progressive and open-minded that way. And so uh, when you took the head writing job, what did you come in with any kind of mandate? <laughs> yeah, of course, the mandate always is, you know, get better ratings. Um, well, the mandate was, and I think this is one of the reasons they came to me, because I had a sense of history with the show, was to make the show to go back to the more traditional storytelling model and to go back to more of the history of the show. But, you know, it's tricky because I, I, Jess and Steve and I just met each other. We didn't know each other. It turns out that we were amazingly compatible. Steve is no longer alive, but Jess and I are still very good friends. So a great partnership was born. And what happens then is, you get into a flow, you get into a sink, and everything's working. You know, Bob Calhoun was in line with what we were doing. The actors were in line with it. Everything was just working for a brief period of time. And what ended up happening was Doug Marland became available. And Doug Marland was, you know, a major. Of course. He was one of the stars of, of head writers. And they grabbed the opportunity to bring him on and fire us, which is, you know, what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but then he hired me to write breakdowns for him. So not shortly after that. And the reason that he did is because we had a transition period. And sometimes, you know, writers get weird in these situations. They say, that I'm fired. I'm, I'm not going to help the person who's taking over. I never, I thought that was a stupid attitude. I said, let me help you in any way I can make it through this transition. So, wow. again, because I couldn't keep my mouth shut with story, he thought I had something to contribute. So he, then he hired me as a breakdown writer. 
You know, I, I know in, in later years people like Jill Phelps and Paul Roush, John Conboy, uh, Chris Goutman, you know, found their jobs extra difficult because they not only ha- had to answer to the network, but they also had to deal with Procter & Gamble. And I know it was a much different era, but did you face any of that as head writer during your tenure, or did your producers shield you from a lot of that? We were shielded. We were absolutely shielded. Bob Calhoun was a, you know, he, Bob was from the theater himself, and he and I had known each other actually in the theater back when, when I was young and an actress, and he would fight the battles with us, and he would fight the battles with them. He never, ever put us in the fray. And as a result, when the compromises were made, either we made them with them or he made them with them, we were all united and um, and we moved forward in a secure direction. I mean, that's what really being a good executive producer is all about. You know, uh, back in those days, Luke and Laura were gone, but GH had successfully moved Tristan Rogers and Fanola Hughes and, you know, that whole bunch front and center. Days of Our Lives was getting ready to catch fire, a network away with all their young lovers. Uh, Guiding Light right next door to you was about to strike gold with uh, Reva Shane Lewis and, you know, her gentleman callers. Uh, As the world turns, I think it's fair to say, was always saddled with the reputation of being a very stodgy, very conservative show. But we both know that when something hits huge in daytime, in television period, but in daytime especially, 27 carbon copies spring up immediately in all the windows. And, And I'm wondering how much pressure did you feel knowing what was going on all across the dial to spice up world turns and try to compete on that playing field? Oh, that pressure was there. There was no question. That pressure was definitely there. And ironically also, Brian Franz was vice president of daytime at CBS around that time. And so I don't know if, I mean, boy, this really goes back, but this is Tom and Margot days when Justin Dees and Margaret Cohen were Tom and Margot, and we were having them scale the side of the Gillette Castle in Cheshire, Connecticut. Again, we're trying to copy Tom Racina, who's sitting right here. And also Raiders of the Lost Ark and the movie with Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, Romancing the Stone, those were all popular. So it was all like super adventure. And there was no question we were trying to do that. And that's some of what Guy Sierra, who was from this, you know, country that was having a revolution somewhere in South America, you know. Yeah, we we were definitely directed to compete with what the other shows were doing. And did that, did you... Find it easy to fit that within your vision, or was it always a, a, a push-pull struggle? The the I, I didn't find the romance and the you know the young people coming together the, uh, uh, much of a struggle. That was okay. Having to come up with outrageous plot points to put them in jeopardy and in adventure was a bit of a strain because it took you out of the relationship realm, which sure. is really what soaps are about and into, like, making adventure movies. So, yeah, that was hard. Was it a strain for the actors, too, or did they love all that stuff? I think they loved it. I frankly (laughs) think they loved it. I mean, we did outrageous things. We went to Jamaica, you know, and we had Mr. Big, the, 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 I don't know what's the politically correct word for someone who is a little person, but he was the big villain, but he was a little person. And people were being dragged. In fact, my husband, just to go on the remote with us, because my husband's an actor. He was on The Doctors for years and Edge of Night and stuff. I don't know whether you know that. Patrick Horgan. Anyway, in order to get to go on the remote, he played one of Mr. Big's henchmen, and he had to be dragged (laughs) behind this boat at high speed. Oh, my Lord. Which he did. He did the stunt himself. 
But anyway, so, you know, that yeah, that was a lot of fun. There's no question. It was a lot of fun to do. But it was hard because it's not, it's not a medium that we're, we're not set up to do that the way they are in nighttime or movies. Of course. You know, as somebody on one of the boards, and, and I should say right now that because I've never been a World Turns devotee, as it were, I, I threw something up on several of the message boards to solicit ideas for, you know, conversation topics and, and to find out what what questions the fans of that era really wanted to have answered. And and a number of people hit me up with really terrific questions, and there was this one guy named Carl on the Soap Opera Network boards who was a lifesaver. I mean, he laid out a ton of ideas to work with. And, oh, great. Uh, uh, he had several questions about, about the, the legacy characters. First of all, uh, my understanding is that both Helen Wagner and Eileen Fulton had been gone from the show for a time uh, during your during your tenure, and that they came back under you. And uh, no, no, that's not right. Uh uh-uh. uh okay. <laughs> At least, at least not to my recollection, it isn't. <laughs> okay. I don't remember Helen or Eileen not being on the show. Okay, fair enough. Uh, another one of his questions regarded how you guys managed to convince the legendary Rosemary Prince to come back for Bob and Kim's wedding after she had sworn up and down that she would never come back to the show. I mean, do you have any insight on, on how that and, happened? And, you know, what's also funny about that, you know, she was supposed to be living in England and married to Franny's stepfather. Yes. And that was played by my husband, Patrick. <laughs> now, Doug was, I think Doug was head writer at this point. Okay. Because I think I was writing breakdowns when this was happening. Okay. But I would imagine that probably P&G got to her and begged her to come back. I I frankly don't remember the details. But I do know that it was very exciting when she did. Of course. You know, just looking at the cast that you guys were working with in those days, I mean, good Lord, we're talking about Meg Ryan and Julianne Moore, that alone would be enough. But you also had a very young Christian LeBlanc who would go on to become a superstar in a later role. You had... Uh, Scotty Bryce, who was destined to be a star the moment he stepped into frame. Yeah. Uh, Justin Dees, Mark Pinter, uh, the fabulous Hillary Smith, mm-hmm. Stephen Weber, a very young Martha Byrne, the great Liz Hubbard. I mean, what writer worth her salt wouldn't give their eye teeth to write story for those people? Well, it's true. <laughs> so seriously, tell the truth. Do you still, to this day, flip out whenever you see Julianne Moore in a, in a movie or on television? Oh. I mean, I know that, I know hindsight's always twenty twenty, but you know, Meg Ryan and Julianne. Did any of you have any idea what lay ahead for those actresses back then? Uh, you know, we did. And in fact, I actually, Betty Ray and I were the two people who found Meg. We needed a Betsy. And the minute she walked in and read for us in the room, we both, she left and we both said, that's it. There is no question. Wow. And Julianne came on after I had left, after okay. when I was working for Doug. But okay. with both of them, you just knew that they were going to go on and be stars. And I'm sure the fans remember that when Meg left, no one could fathom the notion of anybody else ever playing Betsy. It was a real blow to the show. Yeah, you know, a, a couple of people online wanted to know if you had any involvement at all in recasting Meg Ryan with Lindsay Frost as Betsy, and I, and I asked that because I remember seeing Lindsay Frost 15 years ago or better in a in a miniseries. She acted opposite Harry Hamlin, and she was absolutely extraordinary. And you know, I always wondered why she never made it big because. Because uh, you know she was she was great, and I think she had a pretty rough back then. And we see it you know time and again in this genre. The wildly popular ingenue decides to leave. The show must go on. We've got to replace her, and you know it's a no-win situation for everyone. Yeah, although she was, she did a wonderful job. I mean, I wasn't again. I was I wasn't head writing the show when Meg left, so I wasn't involved in the new casting. And I know that it was very difficult. It wasn't so much a question of talent. It was a question of the fact that Meg was a, a unique personality. And 
everything about the way she looked, she still looks this way, you know. Of course. And, of course, we also had her with Steve, you know, the intense Greek. That combination was really magical. So I think with Lindsay Frost, Betsy went back to more like who you would expect Betsy to be, being the young ingenue on the show. But I thought she did a wonderful job. She wasn't Meg. She was her own Betsy, and she did a very good job of it, I thought. You know, it's it's so funny that you mentioned that. In football, they call them intangibles. You know, the players, they have all their stats, and, and uh, you know, you can quantify them that way, but then some people have those have those intangible qualities, and, and I think that uh, Meg had just had that it, whatever that it thing is, she had it. Mm-hmm. And so did, obviously, Julianne Moore. Absolutely. You know, I, I would imagine that it's the greatest nightmare for a head writer or a producer in this industry because of, because of a perfect storm of it. I mean, you know, the fact that you do five shows a week, the exhaustion that sets in from that kind of grind, and the immense popularity that can erupt from that kind of sustained daily exposure. But, you know, I'm sure it's the greatest nightmare when a Meg Ryan or a, or a Tuck Watkins or a Roger Howarth or a Nathan Fillion yeah. come to you after, yeah. the, after you've played them hot and heavy five days a week for years, and they say, well, you know, I think it's time for me to go. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. There's no question. And, in the, you know, in the beginning, it's harder. After you've been through it a number of times, you realize you can figure it out. The amazing thing is the shows carry on no matter what. And as difficult as some of these transitions can be, the audience will get behind the new actor playing. I've seen it time and time again. They love the shows, they love the characters, and they get used to the new person rather quickly. And in most cases, they bond equally with them. Wow. So were there any stories that you wanted to do on on World Turns but weren't allowed to for whatever reason? Probably. Of course, we are talking. I don't even want to tell you how many years ago (laughs) we're talking about this time. Of course. Um, You know, the thing is we really only head road for a year before Doug came in, and we did a lot in that year. So I don't remember feeling that there was something we wanted to tell that we couldn't. We loved the idea of you know, Sierra and her coming from this foreign country. And and the characters were so rich because we had, you know, Liz Hubbard's character who was so fascinating. And I don't remember, I don't remember any story that we, you know, that we didn't want to tell. We got to, we got to do what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, head writers had more power back then. Of course, of course. Even if you were inexperienced especially in P&G land, they understood that without the writer and without a visionary, the show was not going to get the ratings it needed to get. And remember, these P&G guys that we were dealing with, they dealt with Erna Phillips. They knew Erna. (laughs) They'd grown up in this form. And Erna was, her word was it. You know, she, Fred used to tell me stories when the show was live. She'd call up and say, I don't like that actor. Get rid of him. And they would get rid of him the next day. (laughs) So even back then, unless you were going to come up with some story that maybe they they found objectionable, they were quite happy with what we did. Did not get a lot of grief or resistance. And so after Doug came in, how did you feel about the state that you left the show in versus what you were handed when you arrived? Oh, it was in much better shape. And he also was very complimentary about it. I mean, all the characters were in place. Everybody was connected. The stories were all going. It was easy for him to pick up. And he, you know, decided to to go in different directions, really build up the Snyders. That was his sort of thing. We were also coming out of that whole romancing the stone era as well. 
back to the more familial style. But, um, you know, I think that it's certainly one of the things that the three of us did is that we got the show on a very solid footing, and then he was able to take over. And once he took over the show, you couldn't beat World Turns. Of course, no question. And then, then I find myself back on One Life to Live in competition with World Turns. <laughs> And I literally, I took a week off after it was announced that I was going to become executive producer before I started work, and in that week is when Doug died. Mm. And I remember reading about it and thinking, the whole sense of the history, my having worked for him and his coming in then, and I'm now just taking over the show, and as sad as it was, it wasn't the worst news either, you know, because (laughs) Doug Doug delivered the ratings. He really did. Of course. And and uh, you had a head writer who was very Marlon-esque, I think, in the way he approached uh, constructing his show. No question. Uh, we we had we had another giant storyteller in Michael, and uh, that of course was you know great. No question. How long did you work under Doug doing breakdowns? Was it was it an extended period <laughs> of time, or was it just a? It, not very long, because he okay. fired me after the after I think Uh-oh. three months. <laughs> Working for Doug was. The hardest thing I've ever had to do and the most unsatisfying thing I've ever had to do. His way of working was a way that I could not wrap my head around. We would meet at his house in Connecticut. Now, I have to tell you, his house in Connecticut had been the governor's mansion, which some (laughs) previous owner to him had taken apart board by board from Hartford or outside of Hartford and moved to New Canaan and Wilton. The service entrance was in Wilton, and the main entrance and address was in New Canaan. <laughs> now, I lived in Wilton, but we could only come in through the service entrance. You wow. Know? And he had two huge guard dogs that were in big cages outside the back entrance to the house where we had to go. And every time you walked by, they growled and went at the gates and you know scared the you-know-what out of me every time I walked by. <laughs> It's an enormous house. However, the library is this tiny, tiny room on the first floor. That's where we worked. So there were three or four of us. One of them at the time was Garen Wolf, you know, head writer and now still going to be on the writing team of GH. And Doug would come in, and we would sort of like free fall about the week and what did we think and what were our ideas and what should we do and that's the way he liked to create he didn't have a big strong idea of where he wanted to go he wanted to be fed by us and then you'd go home and you'd come up with some idea for your breakdown and we'd go back and we would work with him and then you ha- we we had like one day in which to write the breakdown and the breakdowns at that point were single space like 25 30 pages long jesus and I remember literally having to work round the clock just to physically get it done. And then he'd go over it and change it all. And this was and back com- in the days before computers and before... Yeah. <laughs> yes. And he had a wonderful secretary, wonderful secretary, who managed him magnificently. Her name was Annie. And one day she and I were talking, and she kept saying something about her husband at the hospital. And I said, is your husband a doctor? And she said, no, he's the vet at the Wilton Hospital for Animals where all my dogs were his patients. Very small world. <laughs> anyway, uh, he, I, couldn't, I, could, I couldn't seem to get it right. I mean, he just would, he would say no, and you'd have to throw the whole thing out and do it again and again and again. And finally you'd get the thing turned in. And it was such hell that it was clear to both of us that it, it was not going to work. So, so he let me go, and I was very grateful. I got my life back. 
also used to, we didn't know whether or not we were going to stay for dinner. He wouldn't let us know until, here's what would happen. We would say to our families, we don't know if we're coming home tonight. And at 5 o'clock, he would either say, okay, guys, off you go, or out would come the scotch. And that's when we would know if the scotch came out that we weren't going home. So we were allowed to call home and say, free cell phones, you know. Okay, not coming home tonight. Then we would sit down in his formal dining room and be served an elegant dinner. Holy cow. You know, he just was, he lived the life of a major soap opera. Of course. Patriarch. And and from all accounts that I've heard, he, he loved the hell out of it. He absolutely adored it. Now, Tom does have a funny story about that. Can I chime in with this? Absolutely. Go ahead. Hello, Tom Regina. Well, the the greatest story about about that house that Susie told you about is that Doug Merlin had a very famous toilet, and he would invite you to use this certain bathroom. And when a man walked in there and lifted up the lid and the seat, you would find Gloria Monty. He had the inside of the toilet lid pasted with a photograph of Gloria, so you'd piss on Gloria. It was priceless. I never, I was never invited to use that toilet. Uh, so I think, I, never it was, I think it was only men he wanted to go in there and pee on her, you know, That's because hilarious. they flash more. And you know, for those listening to this who may not know the story, Gloria Monty and Doug Marlin worked together very famously on General Hospital in the beginning of the Monty era, and right. and uh, it ended very badly between them, I believe. Sure did. And this is, wait, isn't that when you came in, Tom? When you left? Well, it was after Pat. No, it was after Pat Falcon Smith. Oh. I came in really at the end of her when when they went on strike. So I was a little later, but the stories remained legend. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that toilet still exists somewhere. You know, it, it, it was a relic. I mean, that was just priceless. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. The house is currently on the market, and I know the real estate agent. I should ask her. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the direction in which Doug took some of the characters and relationships, I mean, most famously, I suppose, Barbara and Sierra and Craig, Duncan and Shannon, Lily. I mean, not that it matters now, but just for the sake of conversation, were there instances when you – had something totally different in mind for those characters, and and uh, he took it in a different way entirely? No, it didn't work that way because he – I guess the answer is yes. I did come up at, at times with ideas of what I thought could be romantic interludes, for instance, with Craig and Sarah, and he would hate them. So we just were not in sync story-wise at all. And it's frankly so long ago and it was so short that I can't really remember, you know, all of the details. But my inclination always is high romance. Of course. Take it as slow as possible. And he just had a different kind of take. So, you know, mostly whatever I was doing was not what he wanted. (laughs) (laughs) You know, looking back in hindsight, do you treat that that three-month period working under Doug as – as some sort of master class, or, or is it still kind of maddening to you that, that you weren't in sync with him and that you couldn't get your mind melded with his? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I wish I could have figured him out and melded more with him. I do wish I could have. And I think part of the reason I couldn't is my own shortcoming. I was intimidated by him. He was a kind of a scary guy. You know, he had a temper. There was nothing warm and fuzzy about him. 
although he was loyal to a fault to many, many people, and he loved many, many of the actors, but I found him too intimidating. And, of, and of course, he was such an icon, you know, in, of course. in the business back I mean, then. The, this was the man who created Luke Spencer. He created Bobby Spencer. I mean, he created, yeah. you know, some of the most iconic characters still today on, on daytime television. And the whole the, the combination of the way he worked and how he worked and what he wanted from us and I really consider it my shortcoming and I wish I could have stayed longer and figured it out but it, I just, it just wasn't it clearly wasn't it was not to be. And did you have any communication at all after you left or, or was that it? No, I didn't. Oh yes, no, no, no. What am I saying? Yes, actually, I I had a dinner party like two years later and. He and his significant other, whose name I can't remember now, but was with him in, until the end, came in his Bentley. You know, he had a Bentley, <laughs> among other things. And we were we were living in Wilton, and I oh, it's funny. I had Millette Alexander, which this goes way back. Okay. She played who did she doctor somebody on on Guiding Light way back in the early days. And he adored her. He loved because he'd written Guiding Light too, you know. Of course, yeah. He loved Millette, and there were a couple of people that he knew, friends that were coming to dinner. So he was very happy to come, and we had a lovely, lovely evening. So I mean, there was no bad blood between us. It of just course, yeah. was not. It was just not meant to be a working relationship. <laughs> You know, I, I mentioned this new DVD box set at the top of the show, and, uh, you know, I'm not on anyone's payroll here, and I personally gain nothing from this thing being a hit. But, you know, even though I was not a diehard World Turns fan, I bought this set the day it was announced, and, I, and I'm promoting it so actively for a couple of reasons. First of all, I consider myself the world's biggest Hillary B. Smith fan, even though I know very little about her pre-Nora work, and, you know, she appears on at least a couple of these episodes in the set. And, you know, more importantly, I think that, that all of us soap fans, as a collective one, we all have a vested interest in making sure this thing is a hit because, you know, once all these companies wake up and realize there's still real money to be grubbed from inside their vault, the floodgates are going to open, honey. And, you know, we're going to see collections like this from all of our favorite soaps. Another World, yeah. Santa Barbara, Texas, Guiding Light, uh, Ryan's Hope, One Life. You know, I, I can't tell you, I would kill to see some of that One Life stuff again from the late 80s and early 90s or, you know, early classic Santa Barbara or uh, Beverly McKenzie and Michael Zaslow going at it again on Guiding Light. I mean, I would kill. And for a measly 20 bucks for 20 episodes, this is the steal of the century, I think. It's a pitch-perfect gift for the soap fan on your Christmas list this year. And, you know, by damn, I think it's time that all of us soap fans, and I absolutely include myself, I mean, I know I get to sit here and talk to folks like Susie and Tom and Linda Dano and, you know, act like I'm worthy of that honor. But at heart, I'm a fan just like all the fans who listen to the show and all the fans who watch those shows. And, you know, it's time that all of us soap fans put our damn money where our, where our mouths have been for years and support this project. You know, we've all bemoaned for years the fact that the networks and the conglomerates that haven't bothered to take the time and expend the energy to make these shows available to us on video and now someone has stepped up and done it, and I truly think we have an obligation to stand behind it. I really do. Yay. You know, I, You're I, right. I didn't even watch As the World Turns, but I pointed up my 20 bucks and did so happily. Happily. You know, t you're absolutely right, Brandon. Tell me how one gets it, because that I don't even know. Uh, the website is www.soapclassics.com. Okay. And uh, uh, you, you go there, and all the information is there. And like I said, I'm not on the payroll. I, I have friends who helped compile this project. And uh, like I said, I'm 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 doing everything I can to make it a hit because once this is a hit, the floodgates are going to open. I think. Right. What a wonderful! It's so true. I mean, it's so important, Brandon. Now when they're all being canceled, absolutely, that we go back and preserve 
this is an era of a genre that was very special and will never be again in this form. And since they've been hopefully keeping the tapes for all these years, we really need to preserve it in a form that uh, won't let us forget. You know, I remember when you were at One Life and ABC put out that Daytime's Greatest Wedding series on VHS, and, and as I recall, it was a giant smash. I mean, it blew away any and all of their sales expectations. And, and uh, you know, it just it seems crazy that, that you know, when something is, seems so obvious to me and millions of other fans and nobody else, I mean, do you have a sense of why they walked away from that concept? You know, I really don't. I think part of the problem, though, was that this is when the genre was, like, on its knees. And the ratings, we were suddenly seeing numbers that we had never, ever seen. And I think everyone was so panicked about it that I think they didn't even think about alternative ways. It was just, go. what can we possibly do to stop the bleeding? Of course. It's a shame because, you know, I, I'm surprised that they haven't been, they went on and did SoapNet and, all of that, of I'm so surprised they weren't more forward-thinking in terms of these compilation ideas. And, you know, they did a, they did that journal of Patrick Thornhart's poetry, and, and Gary Warner put together those gorgeous coffee table books for all their shows. And, and uh, you know, that, that, that way of thinking just seems like it's gone now. You know, I just think they've given up. This is what I really think is they've given up on the daytime audience. I don't think they have any way of really quantifying how big it is. And I think they think since it can't support the form anymore, I don't think they care. Now, maybe that's harsh and maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine why they wouldn't be doing more of this kind of thing. You know, while I've got you both together here, I, 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 it's, a, it's a great question to ask both of you, and, and I'd really love to hear both of your insights on this. You know, I think the conventional wisdom is that Luke and Laura largely helped save soaps and O.J. Simpson largely helped finish them off. And, you know, I know this is one of those impossible questions, and there's all kinds of nuance in between there, but can either of you even let yourself fathom what would have happened had there been neither of those two events? Hmm. I mean, you know, I know we kind of touched on this last time you were here, Susie, but, but yeah. you know, it, if there had never been an OJ trial, for instance, with all those massive disruptions, is it conceivable that soaps would still be going strong today, or was this always doomed to be the end result, what's happening no. now? This it was doomed to be the end result. Absolutely. It just hastened it, that's all. It just dealt a huge blow in the middle, but it would have come. It's a bigger blow because of what happened with Luke and Laura and thus all the soaps. We came into that prime, into that heyday, which they had never come near before. And it, it's hard to even talk about one without the other. When you said, imagine it without Luke and Laura, <laughs> I can't even imagine my life without Luke and Laura. It made a career for me. So but, that, you know, that's a really difficult concept to wrap your head around because that aided every single, the whole genre of soap operas just went into the stars with the beginning of the Luke and Laura adventure. You know, Brandon, as a matter of fact, I was just asked to write an article for a, a whole conglomerate of magazines up in this area, New York, Connecticut, and whatever. And uh, and I started by saying 1981, Luke and Laura on the cover of People and Newsweek magazine. You bet. Yeah. 2011, four shows left on the air. <laughs> we went from a time, Luke and Laura captured the imagination of everyone, judges and everybody, doctors, right. everybody. You know, the soaps became cool. It was hot. And the impact of Luke and Laura and Tom writing the whole thing. And Brandon, do we have time for him to tell you of one story we about to, we have to, all the Elizabeth the Taylor? 
Absolutely. Oh, there would have never been a wedding if, if this hadn't happened. We had done the Ice Princess story, and, uh, and of course, we were soaring, and everybody's waiting for Luke and Laura to get married. And I said, well, they're going to be boring once we marry them. Let's drag it out another year. Let's have Scotty come back in Laura's life and blah, blah, blah. And so word got and out. Had, so had they even made love at this point? Uh, yeah, the, the, the rape had happened, and then they fell in love on the whole Ice Princess thing, so they were ready to be married. I mean, it, it, was, it was time, and, and it was the next natural piece of progression of their story. But I said, no, let's drag it out. Let's keep them wanting more. Well, word got out to, I think, Soap Opera Digest, and we got a call one afternoon. We were in Gloria Monti's private little office conference room, and there's a red phone in the corner that never rings. It goes directly to the Pope or the White House, you know? <laughs> and, and it was... It, it was to Jackie Smith in New York City, and this phone rings, and we all stared at it because it was always turned off for a writer's conference. So <laughs> Gloria picked it up, and no one could out-talk Gloria. She, I mean, Doug Marland was right on the money. I mean, she would just overrule you in a second and put you down, and she couldn't get a word in edgewise with her little bitty voice screaming at her, and she finally said, well, talk to the person who is responsible, and she hands me the phone. And this little itty-bitty voice said, I'll be goddamned if you're not going to marry Luke and Laura. You don't know how many movie sets I shut down to watch them every afternoon. And I thought somebody's doing a bad Elizabeth Taylor impression. And she said, no, this is Elizabeth Taylor. And she said, I want my wedding. And I didn't know what to say to this woman. And I simply joked and said, well, you know what? If you come to the wedding, we'll give you one. And she called back, and they made a deal, and three days later it was announced that Elizabeth Taylor was coming on, and I had to create a role for it, so she became wow. the Widow Cassidyne, a story that's still playing today. <laughs> but it's because of Liz that we gave a wedding. We were not going to do it, and then we promised her we'd do it. So. But, you know, it worked just as well because we all remember the last shot where Scotty shows up. So, yeah. you, you know, he, yeah. he ends yeah. up showing up and causing yeah, trouble after the they're married. He grabbed the bouquet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Well. So, Tom, I understand that you're working on a, on a very uh, personal and special project right now with one of the titans of the industry. I'll say, wow, yeah. Paul, Paul and I have been working roughly on and off for a year now, and, and we're ready now to go to a publisher in January. So the wow. agent is polishing it up, yeah. So it's going to be a, 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 a wonderful a trip down memory lane for everyone that has ever been interested in daytime. Yeah, Please tell me there's a chapter cool. about the underground city and a chapter about the clone on Guiding Light. And <laughs> there will, certainly will be. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> we were just talking about that last week. How funny that you, you mentioned fantastic. the cloning. How fantastic. Okay. We're talking about Paul Rausch here in case anybody doesn't yes, know. And, and he's one of the, the great executive producers in the history of the genre. True. And you worked with him on, on Santa Barbara, yes? I worked on Santa Barbara. That was the only real time. And Pam Long, when you did you hear me in the background earlier? Go, oh, Pam, when you said her name. <laughs> I really enjoyed the the two years we spent together destroying Santa Barbara or seeing it into the grave. I guess is the way we put it. You know, Santa Barbara's ticket was stamped long before you guys got there, and, and long before, a, long before. Yeah, you guys made some, a valiant effort to save it. Well, yeah, I think so. Some people say that the introduction of so many young new characters from Pam really whoa, hastened the death. It's one that no one will ever know the answer to, but, you know, we, we have both takes on it. Thank you for yours. <laughs> we, did, <laughs> we, did, we did love that last time, though. It was a wonderful show.
you know, I, I think it was I think it was uh, two main things. First of all, NBC's stubborn refusal to to play hardball with their affiliates was was uh, you got uh, it a primary, and and I think A. Martinez's departure was was a, a death blow. It certainly was. We never recovered from that. You know, Susie, someone named Khan posed this question on the Soap Opera Network board, and I think it's a fabulous question. You know, it's clear to me just from talking to you and and in our private correspondence that you are a people watcher and and something of a sponge. I mean, you just like to soak up your environment. And, and uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd like you to tell me what you learned, good and bad. I mean, you, you worked with some pretty high-profile folks on World Turns and Guiding Light and then, and then later even under uh, Linda Gottlieb on One Life. And I'm wondering what you learned, good and bad, by watching the people around you that you carried with you when it was your turn to be the top dog in terms of what to do and what not to do, how to behave and how not to behave. Mm. Well, one of the things I learned both seeing good and bad examples, was how important it was to create a sense of teamwork and a safe, creative environment for everyone involved on the show to be able to produce this enormous juggernaut, which is what it is. There are executive producers who uh, treat people badly, and then there are executive producers who nurture and respect uh, and treat people kindly, and I definitely was that kind and wanted to be that kind, which doesn't mean that you don't have to fire people and it doesn't mean that you don't have to communicate some hard things to people, but I believed that it could be fun, even though it's a highly pressurized environment, and it certainly was in that case. And the other things that I learned from working with some great people was the importance of good storytelling. I learned a lot in writing and producing about writing, and I became a better writer as a result. It's the ultimate sort of summer stock experience, which is where my theatrical background, where I was, which is that, you know, hey, kids, there's a barn over there. Let's turn it into a theater. We all have to pull our weight and do it. And so... You know, I, I guess those are the two things that were most important that I learned and hoped that I emulated when I was in that position. You know, when you were here back in May, the cancellations had just been handed down for One Life and Children, and it seemed like, you know, it seemed so far away. It seemed like this esoteric thing just floating out there in the future, and now it's here. I mean, it's Christmas. We'll be here tomorrow, and then snap, it's over. And, and you know, as we continue to, to uh, draw closer here, uh, what are you feeling? Do you still feel connected to One Life in a strange way, or, or did you leave it behind you when you left it behind? No, I will always feel connected to One Life. Uh, I, I always do. I feel connected to all the shows. It's, there's when you when you work on these shows, and I was blessed to work on them for years at a time. They never leave you, and the friendships that you make. And Erica and I just had coffee the other day. Oh, wow. She lives in New Canaan, and you know Colleen and I are very good friends, and. We shared something very unique and special, and what's hitting me as we're getting closer to the actual time is the enormity of the death of this form, which I now feel so blessed and grateful to have been a part of and had, you know, 20 years in, and we always knew that it couldn't go on forever, but I guess I didn't think... I'd actually see it this early on in my life. And I'm sort of humbled by the whole thing and sad and grateful. And I'm sure you feel the same way, Tom. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I did think it was going to go on forever. And interestingly enough, Paul Roush did too. He really thought this was permanent, this world, this audience, this 
even the network side, that thing, there would always be changes as, you know, he lived through them all over the years, but he really was rather shocked to see it erode and erode and erode, and finally where we are now is just really miserable for all of us. You know, it's it's so funny. Someone tweeted the other day, uh, I think it was Matt Ashford, but I could be mistaken, but one of the actors tweeted something to the effect of, daytime drama offers the illusion of permanence, and so when we buy into that illusion, we are naturally jolted and rocked to discover that the only true permanent thing in this world is change. And I thought that was a pretty profound way of offering a tiny sliver of light to a fan base that is is literally grieving. Yeah, that's really true. And, you know, so many people grew up with these families on television, on their shows that they didn't have in their own lives. I mean, they were were stronger family units than they had in their own lives. And to find that totally gone has got to be really, really stunning for a lot of people. You know, I, I've talked about this on this show with, with uh, several guests and just kind of babbling myself. I, I was 12 years old in 1988, and my, my mother passed away, my biological mother. And, and I had just started watching One Life and literally for the first year clung to One Life. You know, yeah. it was it was literally like a lot. I mean, I would get home from yeah. school and, and, and I yeah. would watch that show, and it was an hour that I could forget about everything else in the world and life. And uh, 24 years later, I still cling to that show, and yeah, and sure. it's it's really sure. a, it's really going to be a tough loss next month. Sure. Mm. Wow. Very very poignant, Brandon. So, uh, Susie, we discussed the last time you were here. You were talking about your upcoming book, Making Peace with Potato Chips, and and uh, <laughs> you know you have to know that. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're hard at work as we speak here today, and 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 uh, I'm wondering if there's anything that you feel comfortable sharing about the progress of that project and, and more to the point when someone, hint, hint, is going to get a sneak peek at an uncorrected proof or a galley's copy or something. <laughs> <laughs> anything. I'll take anything. I'm dying here. I got Wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that, Brandon. I got a couple of sneak peeks the last couple of nights, and I got to tell you, it's utterly magnificent. I can't yeah. wait. I can't wait. Well, you're very sweet. You're very sweet. Both of you are very sweet. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, uh, it's... It's a very personal memoir about my relationship with my mother and my relationship with food. So, it, unfortunately, it's not an easy book to write in that regard because it it requires really going deep and getting emotional. And I've never written a book before like this, so I don't know how long the revision process takes. Plus, I do have a day job, which is you know my life coaching, so I have to do it you know Absolutely, in yeah. between. So I think it's a year or more away, but I am going to start blogging. I will start in the new year a blog called Making Peace with Potato Chips because what I've discovered is that one possible way to cope with the emotional issues of food is to write your history. And when you write your history and write the circumstances and allow yourself to get into the feelings of it, it is an avenue to understand the mechanism of how it works so that you can become free of it. And, you know, I think eating issues are probably epidemic at the moment in our society for lots of reasons. And so one of my plans is to also do a workbook once I finish the book to guide people to the journey that I'm discovering in writing my book because it's been so freeing to me and I have finally I have finally made peace with potato chips I'm happy to say <laughs> which isn't to say that I won't struggle forever because I think we always do but I have I certainly have made peace and that's the part of the journey I would like to share with wow. other people 
Well, I tell you something. I can't. I, I'm going to drag you back here whenever the book is ready, and and whenever you uh, can talk about it in, in further depth. Because I, I just I can't wait to. I, you know, you know how much I love you, and I just can't wait to read this, and and can't wait to see your next chapter. Oh, thank you, sweetheart. Thank you very much. Well, believe me. First of all, when I'm ready to blog, you're going to be the first to know. I can't wait. And then we'll, you know, we'll take it from there. And I will certainly spread the word. So I know you will. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Racina, when am I going to get to drag you here all to all to my Oh, show? I would love it. You just tell me when, and I'm I'm going to do it. And I've been chomping at the bit ever since you did it with Susie last year. Uh, I would be honored to do it. Well, in the new year after Holiday Madness subsides, I would love to drag you in here for a long conversation about your own career, which is every bit as worthy of a chat. Cool. That's great. I'm going to be home for, you know, I live on airplanes. I'm going to be home all of January and most of February, so it's actually a very good plan. Very cool. And I tell you what, you can definitely keep an eye peeled in the new year for Mr. Tom Racina, as he will be right back here on Brandon's Buzz ASAP for a conversation about the good old days and a sneak preview of that Paul Roush memoir, if I have anything to say about it. And I want to thank Tom so much for popping in here unexpectedly and for being such a great sport. And I, of course, want to thank the stunningly brilliant Susie Betts O'Horgan one more time, uh, who has just made herself a lifer here at Brandon's Buzz, whether she likes that tag or not. I love her. I love doing this show. And, of course, I love all of you guys for listening so readily to all these mad ramblings, mad ramblings that have come to an end for this episode number 87 and for this year, 2011. Uh, if you're already listening, you know how to, you clearly know how to find the show, but in case you don't, three places online uh, to find Brandon's Buzz. The first of them is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. That really is home base for this show. From there, you can listen to the show. You can pull up past episodes of the show. You can uh, send emails. You can leave comments. You can see what it really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. You can see what's been on the show, what is on the show, and what's coming on the show from blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button. That takes you to a full radio archive of every episode of this show. This is episode number 87. This and all previous 86, including the May 2011 chat that uh, kicked off my little friendship here with Susie Betzelhorgan, all can be found in the radio archive at brandonsbuzz.com. I'm also on iTunes. I'm on iTunes, guys. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on my logo. From there, you can download individual old episodes of the show as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing. Uh, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm all over. The, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on iTunes. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I promise you something will pop up that points in you in my direction. And, uh, of course, I wish you guys the happiest of holiday seasons, the happiest of New Year's. I thank you so much for listening and supporting this show, and please stay tuned in 2012 for a heck of a lot more Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. 
Great guy. Great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So <laughs> if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.